dig it. Hello, hi, and welcome to episode big o forty five o of the Macho Movie Man podcast. We are steaming, steaming ever closer towards that big 50th. Mm-hmm. And welcome back to the show this week for the first time since August, way, way back in uh, episode 19, which was our Princess Mononoke episode. He is the forefather of the Borskin. <laughs> Siege. We're going to be well, bringing back many more Borskin jokes in this Connor episode. Lee, a.k.a. Siege. Hello, Two. everyone in the future on the other side of the phone. Ooh. Yes. Long time, long time no podcast. It's been a while. It has. It's been a while. It's been a while. Um, and this week... Um, okay, my original plan... I was going to float this out to the gang... Um, anyone have been interested in doing the Super Mario Brothers movie because we just had Sonic come out but then literally when we were over here the other night drinking at Siege's place I saw the headline break on Twitter that Bruce Willis was retiring from acting because he has al al alphagia yeah I did I did that's it that that's what it is I was I, th- I was Afraid I was going to actually say alopecia and uh, Will Smith would come <laughs> oh, and no. slap me. G.I. <laughs> Jane. Yeah, I was going to ask you what your interest in this movie was and why you decided to pick it. Because I was like, oh, poor Bruce Willis. Because also, it started coming out when the retirement was announced. I was like, oh, so that's why he spent the last few years doing really shitty direct-to-DVD kind of, you know, the action movies that you would see on the, sh- on the shelf in Tesco towards the bottom. So is that why you decided to go for, like, a shitty action movie instead of one of his other movies? Well... What was, like, what well, was the connection? Well, it was, that, more, well, it was more the fact that, you know, people were starting to see it in a different light because it was like, oh, it wasn't that, you know, he was just slumming it and being lazy. He was taking quick paycheck gigs mm-hmm. so that he'd have money to provide for his family when he couldn't hide the diagnosis anymore because it was a it was, I think it was an open secret in Hollywood for a few years okay. now that um okay. his mem his uh mental capacity wasn't what it was yeah and it was start slowly starting to go um and I think it was it wasn't a case of like oh I just got back from the doctors and been diagnosed with this it's like this has kind of been something that's kind of been creeping up whether it was like he was diagnosed with this long ago and been hiding it keeping it a secret Chadwick Boseman style yeah uh, or whether it was just kind of like okay well we kind of knew this was coming in some way that it was an ine- inevitable that he'd be diagnosed with it so instead of doing Hollywood films where it would just be like oh. I'm working uh, like three months just for this one film. He can literally just have a very cushy life of, hey, I'm going to fly into this shoot in Bulgaria in a helicopter, <laughs> literally get out the helicopter, do all of my lines in one go and get back on the helicopter before the rotations in the, in the... <laughs> had stopped. Yeah. You know, but... Um, and I just kind of wanted to do a film from his uh his glory days mm-hmm. um and uh this film i'm like because i was also thinking do i want to do pulp fiction no that's not enough of a bruce willis movie that's too no, much of a tarantino I would, I would, movie yeah. Yeah. i i don't want to do die hard until christmas 
Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. I think Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Um, I don't want to do, like, a Die Hard sequel before, you know. I don't want to do an M. Night movie because that's nope. a different... <laughs> that's a different movie There's, again. You can't... I can't do a M. Night Shyamalan episode and focus on, you know, and have it be, like, the Bruce Willis episode because that's... It's just the Shyamalan episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, oh, you know what? Let's do Fifth Element because... Uh, it's a movie that's like it's fun. It's something that like a lot of people who would listen to this podcast would like. Mm-hmm. I was kind of thinking, oh, I can get Siege on here. Siege hasn't been on in a while, and even when I and even when we said at the party, everyone was like, Siege, this movie would be up your alley. <laughs> um, yeah, and, I haven't seen it um before. Until, yeah, until and the last also few days. this is the perfect blend of Bruce Willis giving a shit. And checked out of the movie Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. It is that perfect balance of giving a shit and not giving a shit. Yeah, I think so. Because that's what, that's the balance that you know in later films, kind of tipped over the wrong way. Yeah. It's like I don't think I had seen a movie where Bruce Willis had given a shit since two thousand twelve. <laughs> oh, that's optimistic. <laughs> outside of well, outside of like, Glass, where he's like he's half. It's it's now looking back now it's hard to tell where I was like he was as fully checked in he was fully checked in and his mental capacity was just holding him back mm. to an extent yeah or whether he was just kind of like I'm I'm fifty fifty on this I I like you, M Night I but, think it's because he know. was invested before from Unbreakable yeah yeah Unbra- Unbreakable yeah. Unbreakable yeah but um and what should we call it but also two thousand twelve he had Looper and Moonrise Kingdom. I love Moonrise Kingdom. I forgot that he was in that for a second. He's the... Haven't seen Looper yet. Looper's quite good. Moonrise Kingdom is kind of that... Uh, is one of the examples I give of my theory that um, Bruce Willis's commitment to movies uh, decreases when his hair decreases. <laughs> like, Bruce Willis with his hair, nine times out of ten, it's his best performances. <laughs> Like, he has hair here, he has hair in Die Hard, he has hair in Death Becomes Her. All of, like, his best work, he's at least either bald, has hair or is balding. Does he but, have hair in 12 Monkeys? I don't know. I, I actually haven't seen 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys is good. I haven't seen Looper, and they kind of he give is, me the same is, vibe. He is bald in Looper. He has a, two, he has a wig in uh, Moonrise Kingdom. He has that kind of... But deep down you know yeah, it's he's, a wig. Yeah, he ha- has that vibe of like, yes, he he would be bald if this wasn't Wes Anderson. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I think but, um, um, I think it works in Moonrise Kingdom though, him kind of not yeah. giving a fuck. It's the same as like Bill Murray as well. It's a really yeah. relaxed sort of... But it's also it's like a, a not giving it... It's like not being... Not giving that much of a shit in a Wes Anderson movie is kind of the vibe. Mm-hmm. You know? It's more like the kids are all kind of manic yeah. and stuff like that. As and opposed... They're dealing with adult drama and then the adults are all kind of just dumb. And also the adults are children in themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but when you get to like Die Hard 5, it's just depressing. I, I Honestly, I didn't know there was five Die Hards. Oh. <laughs> I thought there was two of them. There's two... <laughs> Actually, the third Die Hard is probably the second best behind the original. It's oh, got Jeremy yeah. Irons as the villain, and yeah. Samuel L. Jackson's in it, and it's like, okay. it's 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 not like, 
within one building. It's just like throughout all of New York, essentially. Yeah, so they bit kind of a of, departure. A bit of a departure, but it's uh, but needed. It, yeah, yeah, but all, and also like the villain is like the younger brother of Hans Gruber, so it's like, okay, yes, and played by Jeremy Irons. And it's also I think like they do a really clever thing where the villain's first name is Simon, and he's also when he's like threat, and he's like, oh, I have these bombs. Unless you do what I say, I'm gonna I'm gonna detonate them. <laughs> so it's essentially just like Simon says, <laughs> Simon yeah. says, "Yo, John McClane, yo, take off your clothes, put on this massive billboard, walk through Harlem, and the billboard has you know." It's like I hate black people. <laughs> just do you, like, do you think children in primary school have an absolute power trick when their name is Simon and like they start to play that? Oh game with my the god! I've never experienced it firsthand, but I can imagine. Oh. It's like if it's like ne- would a modern version of it be in like primary schools now when the kids all have weird names is just like um <laughs> a kid's name is blue and yeah, yeah and just they're playing guessing and it's like do you want a blues clue <laughs> <laughs> oh although let's be honest they wouldn't get the reference probably not no all right let's get into this cast because um it's quite an interesting cast um, we've got Bruce Willis as a uh, Corbin Dallas. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we've got Mila Jovovich in her uh, debut in like her big breakout. Uh, as Lilu, uh, Ian Holm, in that kind, in that period where it's just like, oh, he's the guy from uh, Alien. Uh, pre, oh, that's Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> um, Gary Oldman is the villain. Yeah, great. This is this is that weird period. This is that period where like Gary Oldman was Hollywood's go to English villain, which oh, is kind of odd because yeah. it's like if you're if you're a nine if you're a kid who grew, up, kid or a teen growing up watching movies in the nineties, you would automatically kind of as, uh point to Gary Oldman like villain, but if you're from our generation, you we were introduced to him by a serious black and Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. So it's very odd. It's just like he's he's he doesn't. There's a generation that see him as like one of the ultimate Hollywood villains, and then one generation that sees him as like the opposite. Yeah, he's kind of departed into. This. He's that kind of sympathetic side hero. Mm-hmm. But um, you've got Chris Tucker as Ruby Rod. He steals oh, the show oh every God. time he's in it. He's so over the top, it's great. Be be warned, we will do Ruby Rod impressions. <laughs> Connor, my man. <laughs> my favorite, I, I my love Chris Tucker in this, he's great. My favourite thing is by the end of it, he manages to turn the three words ends of Corbin, my man, into one word. It's just like, Corbin, my man, Corbin, my man. <laughs> oh, oh, I have a fact for you that will... That will change the way you look at Ruby Rod's the character. Oh no. Um, uh, <laughs> Luke Perry, uh, plays Billy, as I like to occasionally jokingly call him Jungle Man. Uh, Luke Perry. Cause what? His, I don't get it. His uh, his uh, well, his kid is uh currently like a wrestler named Jungle Boy. Okay. So yeah. I I just kind of jokingly refer to him a little bit as like Jungle Man. Yeah. But um. Uh, Tony Tiny Lister is President Limburg. You would also know him as the bully from the Friday movies. Um, Zeus, the villain in the Hulk Hogan uh, 
wrestling blockbuster no holds barred from the mid 80s and as the prisoner on board the prisoner ship in the dark night who takes the uh detonator and throws it overboard what a filmography i know such a bizarre filmography (laughs) him and his lazy eye um and then we have uh May Mayween as the uh, diva. She was a I think she was a model, but she plays the diva, the singer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although her lines are dub, her, although her singing is kind of dubbed over by an actual opera singer. Yeah, I'd imagine. Which is understandable. Yeah. Um, let's get into the pre-production on this. Um, All right. Luc Besson claims that he first came up with this story idea at the age of 16, yeah. 22 years before the movie got made. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, oh, I had a lonely childhood, so I made up this huge <laughs> sci-fi universe in my teenage years. And he just kept building upon it and building upon it as the years went on. And he was just like, oh, I think I've made enough hit films now to have a crack at making this into a movie. Yeah. The one he actually wanted to make. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, one of the things, uh, Corbin driving a taxi was actually an ode to Luc Besson's father, who was a taxi driver. And if you watch all of his movies, there's a taxi driver involved at some point. Okay. It's it's like an ode to him. It's like how in Sam Raimi films, there's always the fucking car. Yeah. He always has the car in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the Bruce Campbell. Um... By 1991, the version of the script he had written was 400 pages long. Because again, you've been working on this for 22 years on and off. Yeah. Um, it was, at one point it was going to be a trilogy, but he was able to condense it down into just one film. Oh, thank God. Because looking at this film, it's just like, I, how much more would you have had to add on to get this to a trilogy? Because as a movie... This works as one movie. Yeah, I, I, I could not see this as a trilogy. And I think no. it goes far beyond the scale of like what this is trying to achieve. Yeah, I think you'd be hobbiting it a little bit if you tried oh, to. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, I'd have loved to have seen a sequel, when a sequel, I think, was possible the way that it could have been. Yeah. Because I, 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 I think at this point, the door to a straight-up se- sequel is closed. C- considering... Certain cast, cast members, members are dead, dead and yeah. certain cast members are retired. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm happy that uh, this was made into one film, even though I'm like, I would have loved to have seen more of this world. I think this story works within... I the... don't know when they could have made another film, though, because it's so of its time, I think. It's so 90s. It's so 90s. It's so 90s. Just, like, the costumes and... And just the, the look of, the look of this... I mean, I love it. I love it, like... The future looks like the uh, cin- like the ad in the cinema when they're telling you to turn off the phone. Like, if you go to Omniplex, and it's the way it's the car that's flying through the futuristic city that's kind of, yeah. for some reason, up to about here in water. Yeah. That is essentially what n- futuristic New York looks like in this movie. Yeah, and it's, like, very slightly dystopian, but, like, not quite there. It doesn't really explore that part of it too much. It looks like a cross between Coruscant and Cloud City. But and then everything is super campy as well. Yes. I really don't. This this could only have been made by Europeans. It yeah. could only oh. have been made. <laughs> but I still think like this 
holds a, a kind of a, an important spot in like 90s sci-fi that we'll get into when we're talking about uh, the post-production mm-hmm. um but yeah uh luke Besson had been trying to make this uh since the early 90s um he had the world wasn't ready for it yeah he had he had he actually approached uh comic book artists uh jean gerard 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 who had uh, come up with a uh, who who went under the pseudonym of Mobius? Ooh, don't get no. no, no, not Mobius. Mobius. <laughs> it's quite and close. um, Jean Claude Maziris, uh, to be a part of the production design team. Um, uh, Maziris actually most famous work was Valerian and Loreline which Luc Besson later made into the 2017 movie uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which is like the fifth element, but like not as is, good. Is it a teen movie? I, ha- I haven't seen it, but I, I have like this brief memory. Of, it's like, Dane DeHaan, Cara Delevingne. Yeah, Cara Delevingne. Yeah, when That's they were trying to make... It's probably a teen dystopian. Yeah, when they're that. trying to make her happen. It's... It is. Oh it's yeah, tr- it you're is, right. It they were, is, were trying to make her happen for a while. Tr- it is. Yeah, it's kind of more fifth element, but within that kind of teen, kind of aiming for like a younger audience. Yeah, it was. It was like at the same time when like uh, the Hunger Games and like Divergent yeah, was all it was. Blowing up it was kind of like, hey, what if we made? What if we made like the YA version of? Uh-huh. Uh, the Fifth Element with the guy who made the Fifth Element, yeah, who has just not made a movie as great as the Fifth Element since the Fifth Element. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he tried. So they were trying to get it on board at one point, and Jean Paul Gaultier was also brought on board to do the fashion for the movie. So like a genuine like world famous fashion designer made all of the costumes. Oh, and it was a great choice as well. Yeah. Uh, over eight thousand drawings were done in the co- in a in the course of a year between this creative team. Oh my god! Um, but it exceeded the acceptable budget that was that the studio gave them, and they disbanded for a couple years. <sighs> but then Luc Besson went off and made Leon the Professional. Okay. Which was the which was a huge hit. Uh, kind of, it was a revenge film. It was Natalie Portman's uh, big breakout. She would have been like, like 13, 14. Yeah. It's essentially like, a gri- uh, it's essentially like what would happen, um, like kick-ass, but kind okay. of grittier and like not as self-aware superhero. More like kick-ass meets taxi driver, that kind okay. of uh, action revenge film. Yeah. Her Gary Oldman's in it. Okay. That kind of set up this uh, friendship that Bassan and Oldman had. Um, and John Renault was in it. He was kind of uh, Luc Bassan's muse for many years. Yeah. You'd know him as uh, Inspector Clouseau's uh, assistant in the Steve Martin Pink Panther movies. He was also in the 98 Godzilla movie. No. Mm. Was the ninety eight Godzilla movie the one where there was like the a ma- load of eggs on in the place? Matthew Broderick, yeah, that's a lot to, of fish. Uh, an alien movie. It it was Roland Emmerich's uh, Godzilla, so yes. Okay. Um, but yeah, and so uh, 
Yeah, no, and and again at that point uh, he had also done La Femme Nikita, um, and then, uh, Leon the Professional. So it was like, okay, this guy has this reputation now. It's like he can do very European action thrillers about, um, somewhat abused sexual badass women. Because you've got you've got La Femme Nikita. Leon the Professional doesn't really count because Natalie Portman's too young for them to do that with it. Uh, you've got this, and then he also made that Scarlett Johansson film Lucy. Okay. Where she, with, with the tempest, where it's like, oh, she's unlocked more than 10% of her brain power. <laughs> yeah, so that, that is kind of his vibe. Like, he'll, ha- he'll focus a lot on uh, female badass characters who are also wounded, traumatized, um, sex women. Okay. Uh, I'm tr- that it sounds more. Sounds. So it's I, worse saying it out yeah, loud. Yeah, I said it, it sounds worse than how I say it. it's. It's not as bad as how I make it out to sound. <laughs> but um. Yeah, and so once they found, once it was like, oh, he's made us a hit. Um, yeah, we'll bring him on board. So the success of Leon the Professional allowed Basson to get a blank check movie. Which, again, like if anyone has been listening to these podcast episodes, blank check is, you made a hit movie for us, here's money to make whatever you want. Do whatever. I'm yeah. to this. Inception is the blank, is Nolan's blank check for The Dark Knight. For everything. Yes. And then Inception was Nolan's blank check for the rest of his fucking career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in, that, in, that includes casting every white actor who has ever existed to be an Oppenheimer. <laughs> that, that cast is going to be an episode of us just spending the entire first hour <laughs> reading through that cast. Yeah. Name a white guy in Hollywood. He's in Oppenheimer. <laughs> Josh Peck has has a speaking role in Oppenheimer. What? Josh from Drake and Josh. That is crazy. Like, I swear to you, look up the cast of Oppenheimer every day. It keeps getting bigger. Um, but yeah, and so... At this... I told you, oh. it's, it is fucking <laughs> massive. It keeps going. Whoa. And, I, and I'm pretty sure they haven't had time to add Christian Bale to the list because he's also <laughs> signed on to be in it. Oh my god, that's crazy. Um, but um, anyway, back to the fifth element. Um, casting choices for the role of Corbin... Um, obviously, Jean Renault was asked because uh, he was Basson's first choice as, you know, here's the guy I enjoy working with. He's, we've had a lot of success together. Um, but obviously, Renault couldn't do it. He had, he had um, Godzilla applications, I'm, I think. He's <laughs> like, oh, I, I, I cannot do it, mate. I need to go and uh, be in the Godzilla movie. <laughs> I apologize to all of our French listeners. <laughs> Um, so it went down to two choices, Willis or Mel Gibson. Oh, gosh. But again, this is 97. <laughs> this is like, he's a, he's a two years post Braveheart. He's okay, not, he's not, yeah. he's not the anti-Semite. Whoa. He's still oof. a big name, but was he not always just a nightmare to work with? I, 
I can't tell. I I don't know if it was at this point or not, but it was just like he wasn't. He wasn't the. He wasn't the uh, damaged goods that he is now. <laughs> yeah. He could still open a movie well enough in Hollywood to kind of maybe get away if he had some difficulties on set. You know. Yeah, I can't see it though. No, no. Uh, Bru- Willis was interested g- dating back as far as the early nineties in this role. Really. Yeah, because again, he uh by the by the late by the st- dawn of the nineties, he had hit it big as uh, John McClane, mm-hmm. and it was just like, oh well, I'm a movie star now, and he wanted to kind of take some more interesting roles. Like he took Death Becomes Her. Yeah. If you've ever seen that, like that is very much like whoa this guy is a mass this guy is just like a newly minted massive action hero in hollywood and he's doing this you know weird uh supernatural body body magic slightly horror camp film with meryl streep and goldie hawn like Uh uh but he was a little bit hesitant because he tried, he had, uh, he made a few interesting uh, swings with movies like Hudson Hawk and Billy Bathgate in around 91, 92, and both of them had bombed. Okay, I haven't heard of either of them, so. Yeah, yeah, so he was a bit like, do I do, do I want to do this? I, I'm worried if I make one more bomb, that's the end You're of out. me. Yeah. Um, because again, like, we're still a, we're still a year or two away from Die Hard 3, and then Bruce just kind of having films like Armageddon and Sixth Sense to be like, hey, he can still do, uh, he, he can still be a box office hit, even in slightly stranger projects. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this film, because I think it shows a side of Bruce Willis that has kind of gotten lost in the last few years, when people just want to take the piss out of him for his uh, choices to do these films and... If you've ever heard Kevin Smith talking about Bruce Willis on Cop Out. No. <laughs> oh, no. Bruce Willis did a movie with Kevin Smith called Cop Out. It's really bad. Oh. But, like, Kevin Smith spent the last 12 years going around just being like, it was so, such a terrible experience to work with. He was such a prima donna. They just did not get <laughs> along. Bruce hated him. Kevin Smith, Hayden Bruce. <laughs> it was just like this celebrity feud at one point. Um, but I think Kevin Smith has openly just like, I apologize for my stuff since, especially with the recent news. Mm-hmm. He's come out and was just like, okay, bygones be bygones. I hope you're doing well, Bruce, that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, because if people kind of remember that, they don't remember, hey. The actual movie. Well, they, they forget that, okay, Bruce Willis took a chance on this when mm-hmm. I don't think many other people would have. I don't think he would have gotten... Like, a lot of these names aren't huge. Like, he is the big American name. Mm-hmm. Gary Oldman, it was a, doing a favour for a friend because Bassan fi- helped finance a film that Oldman really wanted to do around this time. Okay. Um, Ian Holm, again, British actor, had been in things, but he wasn't a huge name. There's no one in this movie outside of Bruce Willis who's like a big name that you can hang the box office for this movie on, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, Bruce Willis is doing the heavy lifting in terms of, like, being the movie star that will bring people in yeah. to this high-concept, really weird sci-fi film that would appeal to Europeans but would be a potentially difficult sell in America, mm-hmm. you know? Especially in the 90s. 
Yeah, I think so. But, um... And then also his work with Shyamalan. Like, Bruce Willis saw something in Shyamalan at the start and signed on to do The Sixth Sense. So it's like, while Shyamalan has himself to be like, oh, I, I'm, I got famous, it's also like, well, you gotta thank Bruce Willis a fair bit because it's like, he was the big star that uh, saw this script and was like, I want to do this. This yeah. seems interesting. Yeah. You know? Sometimes I think uh, actors don't get the cr- as much of the credit as they do for taking a chance with their image and their career to yeah. help build a new director, mm-hmm. in a sense. I don't, I don't want to make that be like, oh, we should be grateful for millionaire actors. <laughs> yeah, you know, a, we it's shouldn't. A fine line to walk. It's a fine line, but at a certain point, you just be like, well, you know what? This certain director does owe this actor a... A certain, yeah, a certain, a certain amount. amount because this actor took a chance on him. Yeah, it's all kind you of know? interwoven. Because I don't think The Sixth Sense at that point in time would have gotten greenlit or been the success it would have had without people being like, oh, Bruce Willis in yeah. let's go see it. And then people yeah. go and see it and it's like, holy shit, this movie's great. And then just they tell their friends in the word of mouth. Yeah. 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 Okay. But, um, so yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to do this film because this is an example of Bruce Willis being genuinely really sound. Mm-hmm. So he signs on to do it. Basan says it was actually like the easiest casting uh, process because like <laughs> he just met with Willis, Willis in New York. They talked for two hours and he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. But um, uh, Julia Roberts was considered for the role of Lilu but declined. Thank God. Yeah. You know, she already ruined, the, she already ruined <laughs> Michael Collins. Oh, God. You covered um, that recently, didn't you? Yeah. Oh. Um, and so essentially, uh, well, Jovic ends up beating out 3,000 other women for the role. Um, Basan cast her due to what he called a physical thing. She was a good looking woman. <laughs> I mean, we'll get into that in a physical minute. Thing. We'll get into that in a I minute. Mean, in her first scene, I thought she was really good. Yeah. Uh, and then she kind of just spends a good chunk of the later half of the movie kind of out of it yeah um but the whole look and just like design of her character is iconic enough to oh, where it's yeah. like you kind of forget that part of the movie where she's where she kind of takes the backseat to bruce willis yeah. as the action hero yeah but um the role of ruby rod they originally wanted prince you can uh, see it. Oh, I can so see it. Yeah. Yeah. I think but it could have equally been as good. It was inspired by both Prince and Michael Jackson. Yeah. But I don't think um, the, com- the comedic element of it would have been brought. No. It w- he would have definitely had the sex appeal because yeah. it's Prince. Oh, it would have been the sex appeal and like but, the campiness as well. Like, yeah. And Chris Tucker, to his credit, goes 110% all in. Oh, yeah. Um... Gary Oldman did it, as I said, it was a favour out of his friendship with Bassan. Bassan helped him finance his uh, movie mm-hmm. that he wanted to do. Yeah. I think it was called Nil of Mouth or Nil for Mouth or something. Um, I, don't, I, can't, I don't know if like Oldman directed it or just starred in it, but like it was his film that he really wanted to get made and Bassan helped him out. So it was like, I'll scratch your back, you'll scratch mine. Mm-hmm. In later years, Oldman has come out and said he, he does not like this film. Really? Yeah, he doesn't. He he doesn't like it. No, he he. I don't know if he gets it or not, or whether he's just like, oh, I'm just not. 
that big into it. He thinks it's a bit... Ugh. I mean, like, his performance is amazing. Yeah, I think his performance is great, but yeah. like maybe, yeah, the, fil- the film's a bit silly. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Although, in fairness, Gary Oldman has been in some horrendous films <laughs> in his time. I can see why he wouldn't be super into it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the film is really divisive. It's a lover-hate sort of murder yeah. sort of situation. Yeah, but like... As I said, he's he's had some questionable uh, turns, you know. I'm pretty sure, like, he was... Do you remember the... Yeah, like I said, he was the villain in, like, the first Hitman's Bodyguards movie. Yeah. And he was in, like, the Red Riding Hood movie from the early two- 2010s. Kung Fu Panda 2. I mean, but also he was... Also, this is, like, 97, and, like, he has two amazing villain turns in 97. This is one of them. We'll get into the other one later on. Um, yeah, and so, uh, and he cast Mei Mei Wen for the simple fact that, um, not only did she have a nice singing voice, she was also Basan's wife at the time. (laughs) Although, during production, Basan did leave her for Mila Jovovich. Oh, no. Yeah, so there was this going on (laughs) in the background. Do you remember that physical thing he cast her for? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so he left his wife to shack up with Mila Jovovich. I don't think that mar- that relationship worked out. I- I'll look up now if they got married or anything. But, um... Ooh, I just got a scam text from Bank of Ireland. <laughs> I- I'm- Podcast is not sponsored by Bank of Ireland. No, no. We will not let the Frosters win. <laughs> Because I am with permanent TSB. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, I'm just looking up Bassan now, see what it was. He was married, he did get married to Jovovich, and they were married by the end of 97, but they divorced in, like, 2000. Okay. Yeah, so it was just, like, it didn't, it didn't work out. It did not work out. Um... But yeah, and so, yeah, Bassan wanted to film it in his native France, but the facilities needed for production like this were not available there, so they ended up having to shoot in Pinewood Studios in the UK. Okay. On, on literally, actually, the 007 soundstage. Right. Which is just soundstage number seven, but they've shot so many Bond films there. <laughs> they just, like, let's be fucking extra about it. Um... And, but despite the fact that it was shot in Pinewood, it was still classified as a French production because it was made by a French guy. A lot of the funding was from France. France okay. The production studio, I think it was a French studio. Okay, G- okay. Gaumont or Gaumont. G-A-U-M-O-N-T. I don't know how it's pronounced, but I'll just be like, Gaumont. Gaumont. Pretty we'll much. Go with that. Who knew this movie would have just as many difficult to pronounce names as Parasite did? Who would have known? Yeah. But, um, yeah, it ended up being the costliest European production ever made at that point. Really? Yeah. And Fil- this was 97, wasn't 97, it? 97, yeah. Again, like, they weren't, I mean, like, if, if you were... That's kind of surprising. But also, it's like... European studios did not have the budget that Hollywood had, and yeah, this had a ho- yeah. this was like a Hollywood level budget. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, film began in January of 96 and wrapped by May of 96, 21 weeks later. The Egypt scenes were actually filmed in Mauritania, which I looked up. I think it is somewhere in, like, Western Africa. So, like, it's not actually Egypt, because mm-hmm. I can imagine the production nightmare that is filming in Egypt. I, I don't think half the movies set in Egypt film in Egypt. Because yeah. I feel like there's just, like, a lot of red tape in regards to, like, getting the pyramids available. Yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I highly doubt Michael Bay was able to film in Egypt for Transformers 2 and destroy the fucking place. Yeah, they actually just built the pyramids back up after... Yeah, it yeah. was one of those situations where yeah. they were like, "It's better to ask for forgiveness after." They but also the pyramids. But also they, but also they, uh, they didn't check the building team. So like, under one of the uh, bricks is just a Decepticon logo. <laughs> that's that's transform. That's the sixth Transformers movie. The, yeah. the Decepticon villain is the pyramid. <laughs> um, uh, Busan invent the language that um. Lilu speaks was invented entirely by Basan himself. He's a bit of a Tolkien sort of there person. Is, there is, like there, there, there is like, I think there's like 400 words or sayings in that language. Okay. Um, uh, Basan was adamant on filming the action shots in daylight and brightly lit areas. Because at this point, as he, he exclaimed, he was fed up with the overuse of dark planets and dimly lit spaceship corridors. Yeah, I mean, if you look back at any other sci-fi movies coming out at the time, it was very dark. Anything, anything after, like, Alien was just dark, Mm -hmm. gritty. Yeah. You know, unless it's, like, a Star Trek movie, where it's just, like, every, like, the control, like, the... (sighs) Any Star Trek movie I've seen has come out, like, after 2010. Like the but, new, new ones. But even then, like the the man like the steering wheel room. Mm-hmm. Ishik is gonna kill me for not the bridge. <laughs> the, the bridge. Room? Yeah, okay, the bridge. Yeah, yeah, the bridge is always lit up to fuck. Like yeah. it's always bright. Especially in the Abrams movies when he's just going Yeah, the Abrams balls to the wall with lens flares. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was the height of his lens flare lens flaring. Yeah, and they had that into Star Wars. They had they had to sit him down, it was just like we love we love you, JJ. But the, <laughs> but you gotta cool it on the lens flares. There was definitely lens flares in um the Force Awakens. I don't and know was there any after that. There's, Did you direct de- the third one in that series again? Yes, the Rise of Skywalker. There is lens flares in there, but it's not as much. You know, it's not as noticeable. Yeah. Yeah, he's got there's too there's too much to fucking throw into that movie for him to be worrying <laughs> about lens flares. But they look so cool. <laughs> to him and only him. <laughs> yeah. But um. Yeah, so unless it's like unless it's like Star Star Trek or like certain corridors in uh, Star Wars, mm-hmm. like the Tantive ship when it's just like bright white, you're not getting like really well lit areas in sci-fi because well, that's not what people want. Um, it ends up being the most expensive film ever produced outside of Hollywood. Uh, uh, with um, and it ended up being like a make or break fit risk for the studio behind it, Gaumont. Okay. Um, the special effects budget was at like eighty million, which for not which for the late nineties is even big. You know, mm. like it doesn't sound huge by modern blockbusters, but again, yeah, 
Um, the opera singer Inva Mula was actually the one who sang the diva's number. And despite the fact that the composer was like, okay, you know what, we'll, we'll like put a bunch of shit into this in post. Mm-hmm. She ended up uh, getting 85% of the song sections that the composer felt was not humanly possible to do. She hit she hit eighty five percent of them. Really, that's insane. Like they're like they're just like how can a human vocal cord do that? Um, <laughs> Lilu's signature orange hair was actually a wig created because Jovich kept dyeing her hair orange daily because she was a brunette. But that started to fuck up her hair and damage it, so they just had to make the wig. Yeah, I was thinking. I noticed earlier on in the movie that her roots were, like, bleach blonde, and then it fades to orange. And I was like, how did they keep doing that for the whole production? Yeah, no. Because they were... Yeah, every morning, which was like, we'll bleach it. Mm -hmm. And then it was just like, my hair is broken at this point. Yeah, I mean, four or five days of that... It's yeah. gonna start falling out. Um, despite going over budget dramatically, Bassan refused to allow financiers on set or to view any of the footage. Which is what a, I, I love that. I love that he stuck to his guns. Yeah, that's like how I, everyone always makes the jokes. George Miller uh, chose to film Fury Road in the middle of nowhere in Australia <laughs> because he wanted to make sure the studio was could not find him and find what he was doing. That's actually kind of funny. This movie reminded me a little bit of um, Mad Max. Yeah. Some of the older ones. I I like the sort of slightly dystopian vibes, but where everyone starts to go super campy instead of really yes. gritty. <laughs> Oh, but I think it's like the '90s sort of take on this. You can kind yes, of see it in other sci-fi movies it's, a little bit as well. It's camp, and it's like we're gonna just own it. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. it's the good kind of camp because this came yeah. out the same summer as Batman and Robin, and that's the oh, wrong kind of camp. Okay, this is the yeah. right kind of camp. Mm. Um, so yeah, and again, I just love whenever directors are like, "Yeah, no, fuck you, studio. I'm gonna make sure you don't see this." <laughs> Because you're just going to take... Knowing that they're going to take it off him if they find oh, out yeah. just how insane it is. Oh, for sure. Like like with George Miller. Middle of nowhere in the outback. Studio head's not going to come all the way out here to see what's going on. Get away with anything. Yeah. Just like, how much money is going into that flaming guitar guy? <laughs> um, or if you, you... You know what the term extra means, right? You need to redefine that when you find out what this film's premiere at the Cannes Film Festival was like. Okay. Uh, the studio spent a record amount on the, on the premiere screening at Cannes, somewhere between the region of one and three million. Oh my god. It included building a screening area of 100,000 square feet. Um, with a special swatch for the ticket entry. Like a special watch that was just like, what? here's your ticket, and you kind of you, you scan it. Yeah, you scan like the watch. That sounds pretty cool. Like I kind of would like one of those. Um, a fireworks display, <laughs> a futuristic ballet, and a <laughs> and a John Paul Gaultier fashion show, all part of this premiere for the movie. This was an experience. <laughs> I know, and you want to know why this movie got mixed reviews? It can. They were just like, this is a fucking circus. Yeah, that did, it does sound crazy. Because also, Cannes is very up its own hole at times. Oh, yeah. That, and this is not this yeah. is what this film is about Like Cannes Can always annoys me because I always hear stories of like, oh, people at Cannes stood up and started booing the movie while it was playing. And I was just like, 
You fucking snobs. <laughs> the shite that I go to my local multiplex and watch. And I would love to get be able to stand up and boo, but I'd be thrown out. Yeah. Do you know how much I wanted to boo Morbius? Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I've watched Paul Blatt Mall Cop 2 in cinemas. <laughs> I wanted to tear that thing apart in there. Boo and jeer. But I didn't because I'm a fucking grown-up. <laughs> I don't um, know, I think we should allow it. Yeah, I mean, if Cannes gets to... Do, if the Cannes Film Festival gets to do it, why can't we? <laughs> um, okay, let's get into step-by-step. Step. It opens in Egypt in 1914, um, where an archaeologist finds a wall in a tomb describing four sto- a four-stone prophecy. Uh-huh. You know, here, here is an earth, wind, fire, and wheat, water stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Do you remember the uh, 25th night of September? <laughs> Earth, wind, and fire stone. Were you waiting to say that joke the whole time? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, I can tell. Um, I love the costumes of the aliens when they first come in and just their production design on that. That they, that they literally just kind of look... Um, they look like if someone injected steroids into the wheelers from Return to Oz... Yeah, they, they kind of just look like boulders. They look like, I don't know, they they look, they look got the alien aspect of it, like, very right. Because they yeah. have these tiny little heads and then these huge, like, bodies, bodies and their arms are massive. And they, I don't even think the arms could move properly in the costumes. I'm pretty sure any scene where the arms were shown up close manipulating, like, the elements. I know. It was just, it was just someone on the other side, like, pulling a puppet and not an actual actor with the arm. It looks like the three, the three-way love child of an armadillo, a yeah. droidy car from Star Wars, mm-hmm. and like steampunk. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It was very steampunky as well. Um, but also, yeah, the, so the aliens turn up once the archaeologist has recited the prophecy of the four stones, creating mm-hmm. an ultimate being to save the world from an ultimate evil you know, um, you know, uh, called the great evil that turns up every 5,000 years. Essentially, you know, recite, telling us for the first time, okay, this is it. There's a lot going on. Um, but they show up, they are met with their contact who is a priest, and they tell the priest, talk, tell people generation through generation of this. Mm-hmm. So that we're ready when 5,000 years comes by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, although, i got to wonder, what was it like for that archaeologist going back afterwards? Because back then, you would have had to be financed. You would have had to, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, you'd have had to go, go into like a very, you know, upper, cro- you know, very posh English establishment full yeah. of men in tweed jackets smoking cigars and... Convince them... You know, like, there's not a... You know, you're not, this threat is if, coming in 5,000 years. Yes, you're, like, like one of those buildings where it's just, like, if you're a woman, you're not getting past, like, oh, a certain no. room, you know? A certain just, room, you're not getting into the building. Unless you're, unless you're the receptionist. Oh, God. Or yeah. making tea. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, no, and it's very much just, like, oh, yeah, Monda Shawanans are coming back in 5,000 years <laughs> to tell us about an evil space cloud. Oh, um, but we flash forward to the year 2263, which is exactly 
more years ahead of us than my brain's maths can do. Yes. No, is it not like 300 years or something? Well, it's it's like... I think it was... I think the first one was set in like 1914. It was 1914, yeah. And then it goes to... So we're, we're definitely over 100 years from that. Like we're 180 years and... Da, 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 da. Again, I'm not good enough with maths to use the calculations <laughs> on like how many year, how many exact years. I think years. it was roughly three hundred years. Somewhere along those lines, yeah. I think it I takes know. place in the year. It's in, it's it, It's in the twenty. It's in the twenty third century. Oh okay. Yeah, but um, uh, where the president of Earth is uh being uh, briefed on the emergence of the giant evil which is the best space evil space cloud in movie history by a very long way. Any other um, evil space clouds you want to dis- disclose at this moment? I mean, I don't want to go on a rant, but uh, Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer when they turned okay. Galactus yeah. into a space cloud. Mm-hmm. God, I, I, have ne- I will never not be annoyed. Because you turn like the this gargantuan purple evil machine beast into <laughs> a fucking farty cloud yeah they did the same in green lantern and it was even worse it was worse because at least i can remember the name of the space cloud in fantastic four was called galactus <laughs> maybe it is out of anger for like how wrong they got galactus but i can still remember the name <laughs> but um yeah, and so he's being briefed on the emergence of the great evil um, by both his generals and Vito Cornelius, the this generation's contact with the Mondashuanans. Yeah, so he's like... Um, who is awkward... priest. Who is awkward, weird priest, uh, Ian Holm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, ha- he ha- brings that same energy, but like more uptightness to this than he it's a little bit of the Bilbo Baggins energy but he's way more wound up in this you know yeah yeah he's like this is the version of Bilbo Baggins that really needs to smoke a pipe yeah <laughs> he needs some of that hobbit weed he needs some of that Gandalf weed yeah we all need some of that Gandalf weed that pipe weed that they smoke in Lord of the Rings where it's just literally just like rings <laughs> Um, and so he's briefed on it. They they try to nuke the great evil, and it just makes one of the general's brains bleed, like black oh, goo. Like several times. As it it's They're his way like, of contact. If like yo know, shit talking humans is just make their heads bleed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's so much shit, and they 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 don't explain how he can do that. It's just it's, it's the just great evil. evil. I mean, the, the plot is very simple. I, this I, I just good versus it, evil yeah. sort of thing. I love it. Just you like, don't have to think too much. Yeah, let's give like this end of the world, like apocalyptic evil, just this really cool thing he can do to humans. And let's just not explain it because what other explanation can you do? Is no like, he, is the exo- he is the personification of all evil in the universe. Mm-hmm. He is called the great evil. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and, where is it? And then, and then, obviously, it attacks one of the ships. It turns into, like, a Ghost Rider flaming skull. Mm-hmm. And then we we cut to oh, Earth. Oh, yeah, that was, 
That was kind of awful and cheesy. Yeah, no, but yeah, that's that's one of the things where I was like, whew, I'm not sure how much uh, flaming ghost skulls age. I feel like at the time though, you had to do it. You couldn't yeah. do it. You couldn't do a, like a big explosion thing where it's chasing something without it no. turning into a like, like a skull or maybe a hand it was reaching like, out and almost grasping. It was the nineties. It was yeah. the nineties, bra. Yeah. Certain periods of time when you could get away with that, it was like late 90s and then like a really specific window between 2006 <laughs> and 2007 i just i and just like wonder did people actually like that at the time because i always remember hating it or did you just have to do it because flame, it was the 90s the flaming skull thing yeah maybe it was a bit of both yeah because it's just like that had to have gotten popular somehow it just didn't make that much sense in most contexts no but again a lot of things in the 90s didn't really make sense. <laughs> and they didn't why have is, to. <laughs> why is Paulie Shore famous in the 90s? <laughs> and, let's, and, let's, and let's do the 2022 redux of that question. Why is Paulie Shore voicing <laughs> Fruity Pinocchio? <laughs> Father, when can I leave to be on my own? It's so I've got bad. the whole world to see. <laughs> it's so bad. Yes, Tibbles. I have a special, most incredible dream. <laughs> I want to watch that so bad. I need to find the time. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I gotta sit through it. I've got enough beer. I've got enough cider <laughs> at home. Oh, you're gonna need a bit. You're gonna need quite a bit. I know. I know. Um, I've got. I've got two. You know, all I need is one more. <laughs> um. Uh, and essentially, we cut back to Corbin. We meet Corbin, and we find out that he's a recently retired soldier, now turned cab driver. His mm-hmm. wife has left him. He hasn't gotten over that. He's balding. He's, he's trying to quit smoking. You get the awesome quit smoking machine where it's just like you can only take one cigarette out a day. Yeah, I love I love the design of the cigarettes as well. The quit smoking ones where the cigarettes the same size as a filter and the filter is the same size as what the tobacco should be. It's such a silly little detail that's glanced over. You know, you know this movie is trenched by how much of an impact smoking has on the story. Um... And we just we just sort of we see this world we see them start we see that they're advertising floss and pa- paradise, mm-hmm. flossed in paradise because it's just like hey it's almost sounds like lost in paradise, you know. Almost. Uh, almost, but um, you know we hear Ruby Red for the first Ruby Rod for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have no idea what's coming in that regard. No. We're just like, oh, that's a put-on voice. No, it is not. <laughs> um, and essentially, um, we find out, you know, again, he's, he's not, fu- he's not really happy with his life. He's checked it. His character is checked out of life. Mm-hmm. To an extent, which is why the casting of Bruce Willis is perfect because Bruce brings that checked out energy, but because the character is checked out. Yeah. Him playing checked out, but he's also really invested in the role is why the balance works. Yeah, it's it's balanced. He's a sad his character is a bit of a sad sack. Yeah. Um But yeah, and uh he also almost he get, almost gets like mugged by a guy who comes to the door dressed up as a backdrop of the corridor. Yeah. As camouflage, which is amazing. Just crazy outfit 
I mean, I, I, it's the best. It's the best sort of visual rep- representation of living in a rough neighborhood. Than yeah. Like a a meth a, a meth head is pretending to be your <laughs> to be the callway to to rob you. Yeah. So he deals with that pretty promptly. Yeah. He's like, that, I mean, the gun's not even loaded. I mean, the, fir- I mean, the first time I saw this me. movie, I made the joke, ooh, a young Jared Leto appears. <laughs> this, a a this tweaker. Is, this is definitely, like, a comedy as well. And yeah. you can see that in aspects, like, now when he takes the gun off him, he tosses it over his shoulder onto a shelf that has several other guns <laughs> on it. And they all look like the design of all every gun is kind of ridiculous and stupid looking. I I mean they I mean like at one point the villain Zorg just pulls out a gun that is <laughs> every weapon every. This movie you can kind of tell, uh, yeah a sixteen year old did write this. <laughs> oh yeah, you can tell. Um, but um again we'll get into that when we do Jake take uh when we do some Jake's takes towards the end. Okay. Um. Meanwhile, the Mandashuanans prepare to return uh, the Four Stones to Earth, but they're ambushed by the Ma- Mangalores. I love the names of these aliens. The Mangalores, who are kind of like weird, like they look like wet tyrannosauruses. Yeah, also they can just, they can shapeshift, and it's never explained in this movie, can they do that, or are they using something to do this? Oh, wonderful. It just wonderful. is. Yes, and, and it doesn't um, need to be explained. It just is. Yeah, and then we a find... lot of the plot doesn't make sense either. No, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't really need it to. Does not have to. Um, and then we find out that, so yeah, so they they attack the ship. The the Manishuanans die, and their ship ship is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay, then we find out covered. the Mangalores were hired by an industrialist, Jean Jean Emmanuel. Jean Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg. Zorg. I love I love the the bad guy's name in this. Just Zorg. Yeah, but uh, it's Zorg, but then it's also like every fucking French name. <laughs> yeah. Jean Baptiste Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it it's like the villain version, of, like Dumbledore's full name, which is like, uh, just Albus Wolfric Percival Brian Dumbledore. <laughs> um. And, yeah, so we find, oh, so we see Zorg for the first time, and just like, yeah, this guy is a villain mm-hmm. with his weird, like, plastic bowl head. It's it's so weird, the, the design. I know. Well, fun. Like, Gautier, oh, really fun. Gautier definitely and, snorted a few lines before coming up with this guy's design. And he also has a soul patch. I know. And, a, and like the kind of southern accent uh-huh. that makes him look like he like he would have been the second choice villain in Django Unchained. Yeah. Like he just stepped back off the lanai and was like, <laughs> I'm gonna go visit my friend Kelvin Candy soon. Uh, and obviously with the uh Mondashawans destroyed, obviously Vito Vito Cornelius is uh heartbroken. <laughs> He's down, down bad. He is down, he is seriously down bad. He's just like, oh, we're fucked. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the military, uh, shoo him away. And I kind of like how, like, people listen to the religious folks in this movie, but they don't really respect them. Yeah. Like, if you look at Star Wars, 
the Jedi are like so well regarded and highly regarded in the prequels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here the space priests are just like these kind of weirdos where it's just like we've got to have them in the room. Like they are technically experts on this, but it's like if there's something we want to do, we'll just tell them to fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just I I kind I kind of like that. It's like that's actually how <laughs> priests in space would that's kind of be works. seen. You know, it's like oh yeah, for sure. It's like why should we listen to you? We're on a spaceship. Yeah, you'd have to come up with some new weird religion to make it make sense. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe that's how Scientology starts. Yeah, for sure. They just want to be like, we need a space religion that makes sense. <laughs> oh, but um. And so, obviously, the uh, military shoo them away, and they go down, and they start uh, checking the ship mm-hmm. for any remains. And then they end up finding them. All they, all they find, though, is um, a, a cell, like an arm from one of them, and they mm-hmm. find a cell that has a lot of, as they say, like, cell modes. Yeah. Lingo for like, oh, this has like more cells in it and more capability than a human cell would. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, this thing is special. This is a jackpot. Very smart. Like, yeah. yeah. They take it into a big laboratory and they turn it into a, into a, what they think is going to be the perfect uh, specimen. Because mm-hmm. they're, they're thinking, oh, it's going to be this jacked fucker, you know, there's going to mm-hmm. be Arnold Schwarzenegger coming up in here. Yeah. And then you're just like, oh, a woman. Yeah. And this this is probably one of, I think it's probably the best acted scene in it where she is first like created or whatever. Yeah. From the cells. And she's, she's totally convincing as like this alien who was just made into a human's body and has no fucking clue what's going on. While these old men just kind of, these like yeah. middle aged men just kind of just like, can I have a few moments alone to look <laughs> Her Look. movements are so alien and unhuman. Like, it's so animalistic. The way she, like, runs up and down the tank. And, oh, it's like, fantastic. Trying to escape. Like, this is the best Mila Jovic performance I've ever seen. I've only seen her in this movie, but... That, she, that was great. I mean, I can't that, tell. Is she... Is her, she's Resident Evil, right? I can't... I can never tell the difference between them and Underworld. I've only watched, um... I think it actually... Resident Evils. I haven't watched any Underworld, so I think it's Underworld, yeah. Again... Resident Evil is awful. I'm not a gamer, so it's, like, (laughs) my only real, uh... So my only real kind of, uh... Knowledge of them is, oh, they've made some bad movies. Oh, they've made awful movies. Yeah. They're really crap. Yeah. But, um, Underworld I need to watch it's it's one of those things that has kind of been on the list for a long time but I've just yeah. never like, done it yeah no no. as far as bad video game movies go I'm like I'll stick to the bad Super Mario movie is Underworld is Underworld a video game movie I, yeah, I, I think Resident so Evil, I know Resident Evil definitely I, is no Underworld I think are games yeah I didn't know that yeah. but um yeah, so this is absolutely Emiliovich's best performance that I've ever seen out of her. And it's why, to this day, she's still kind of considered one of the female action heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, a few years back when they were uh, hinting at the idea or t- throwing around the idea of doing, like, a female version of The Expendables, her name was always one of the names that was like, this person's being considered. Mm-hmm. You'd have had her... Um, Linda Hamilton, mm-hmm. 
the more I think about it now, you could le- legitimately do a really great version of that. Maybe, like, don't call it, like, what they were going to call it. It was, like, the Expendables. Oh, no. Like, I, I think you could, but they're all going to be, like... I feel like, um... I suppose, though, on the Expendables, they were all, like, old men as well. I feel like all the, like, horror actors from, like, 80s and 90s movies have really good heroines in them that they could use. Yeah. But, like, I, st- I still think, um... I'll, I'll look it up now. Um, Expendables... Female version. She was in the Resident Evil movies. Yeah. Um, it was in the works. I think at one point there was going... There was going to be a version where they were hinting that the story would be... They all have to pretend to be, like, um, prostitutes to get into this, like, um, dictator's uh, inner circle. Which I'm just like, no! It's not how you do it. No, especially when also you've got names attached that would have been, like, you know, Linda Hamilton, Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver. Michelle Rodriguez, Una Thurman. Jamie Lee, I think would have been cool in it. Jamie Lee. Street, Meryl Streep at one point was even being considered for it. I think that... I mean, it would have been, co- been cool, but weird. I mean, I, she's she's done, like, an action movie in her career, but, like... What action movie has she done? She was in one called, like, The River Wild. Never where it's, like, her and her family go on, like, white water raft... Or, like, ra- river rafting in the wilderness. And mm-hmm. then it was just, like, you know, the, their raft gets hijacked. Such a it, weird concept. Like. It died hard on a river raft. <laughs> hey, I've seen... Hate me all you want. I've seen enough movies know that popping the back of a raft makes it go I, faster. <laughs> I have officially been able I to... I think that's in uh, cartoons. <laughs> I've been... I've been and, and Indiana Jones movies as well. Really? How many times have they done that in Indiana Jones? I think they may have done it in Temple of Doom because also in Temple of Doom Uh, they ride the raft down a mountain. I don't care. I don't. I don't count it. (laughs) Oh, but um, yeah, and but obviously she manages to escape because she is uh, tough as nails. Mm -hmm. Um, she escapes and uh, while fleeing, she jumps from a ledge, (laughs) and crashes into. Corbin's taxi. And Corbin's instantly in love with her, even though she cannot speak English and she's just screaming like gibberish for all he knows. At but her. he's but yeah. she's pretty. But she's pretty. <laughs> she got oh. orange hair and he was wearing an orange vest, so you know. Yes. <laughs> oh, they're all about that orange. Oh yeah. Yes. Like a cut, like a, like two poorly spray tanned people who do meat and coppers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but um, yeah, and so they have managed to evade the police. Um, fun fact, you know the scene where they uh, smash into that uh, cop car that's getting McDonald's takeaway. Yeah. Do you know what the actor who get the actor who gets covered in the McDonald's? Do you want to know what his name is? What? Mac McDonald. <laughs> that's legit. That is so weird. He has the same la- He has the same name as Mac from It's Always Sunny. <laughs> Mac McDonald. Oh, yeah, the McDonald's as well is such a funny scene that they included that and actually got McDonald's like on board and behind yeah. it. Yeah, 
Because it's like you're that, always gonna have my dolls, even in the future. Because it's that it's it's like the it's like the really weird blending of Blade Runner and Shrek Two's uh-huh. fast food yeah, scene. Exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, and uh, well, obviously, so they manage to uh, flee the cops, and Corbin delivers her to Cornelius and his apprentice. Uh, before getting escorted out when they're just like, yeah, yeah, no, no, you don't need to know what this is. You've already tried to kiss her while asleep and get a gun pointed at your head. Yeah, I mean, that's what you get, though. Yeah, this movie teaching us about consent since 1997. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the priests then proclaim her as the fifth element. But also, David then goes home and, like, mopes. Yeah, he just kind of sulks. He away. really does mope. Like he rings up his pre- his mate, and his mate is like, "What was this woman like?" He's like, "Orange hair, blue eyes, willing to make you go to war with the cops <laughs> with just one look." Oh, but um, yeah. So they proclaim her the fifth element. Meanwhile, Zorg. Get Zorg meets up with the Mangalores to get the stones mm-hmm. from the crates, and um, he realized. Can I just say this movie has amazing editing in it? Okay. Because, okay. uh, he opens up the cases and the case like it's empty, and then you immediately cut to Lilo just laughing. Yeah. It was just like this is empty. <laughs> and. She's just like, oh yeah, no, they weren't in the cases. Like the ma- they weren't even being carried by the Mandashuanans. It was a, it was a ruse. Yeah. They're actually on Flotsam Paradise with uh, the diva. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, uh, Gary Oldman goes into full evil Gary Oldman mode, oh, just he's like yelling, a just like barbarian Texan, showing off the guns. Oh <laughs> yeah, he's showing them off and. Like the A R whatever he calls it, the A Z or the oh, Z R. You sell them some that thing. numbers. I buy one. It 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 is like the over the top version of uh, the beginning of Iron Man when Tony Stark is selling <laughs> the missiles in the desert. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, this, what, that's what Iron Man aspired to be. Just it is. It is literally just like what can this gu- gun do? It can do literally everything. It's got a net. It's got a taser. It's got rockets. It's got more flame bullets. Thrower, a flame. A freeze. A, a freeze. It can, a flamethrower and freeze freeze option. Yeah. Just, again, it, it, every every weapon imaginable just in one gun. Just in one gun. And, and you're just gonna give them away. Yeah, I think that's just the over top the over the topness of this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of in one go. But then uh, he also just goes into full yelling mode where it's just like, Zero stones! Zero crates! <laughs> <laughs> he is, he's a very serious black yeah. in this scene. Yeah. He's yeah. a seriously pissed. <laughs> oh, but, um, and then obviously he starts getting pit, he starts getting angry at them. Uh, and they're just like, hey, you offered us to do a job. We're not merchants here. Um, but Zorg tricks the Mangalores by just leaving them with the quantity of weapons and not telling them, hey, don't press the red button, because obviously when you see a big red button on something, you're gonna have the urge to press it, and so it blows up and he believes it kills them all. Oh, he he does one of those, uh, like, badass guys don't look at explosions thing, he's smoking his cigarette and he's... He's facing the opposite way. It is. You see the explosion. It is that moment where it, we kind of see 
oh, this guy is really fucking cool, and then the rest of the movie is to absolutely tear that image down. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so... And then obviously, he then tells him, go get the priest, and so Vito gets dragged up to his office. They have a, a tense conversation. Yeah. And essentially, um, he... <laughs> Zorg is just very much like, oh, I'm doing my evil villain monologue, suave thingy. Mm -hmm. Then he chokes on a uh, a cherry while his... That's the dog. The dog tries to get in the room. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's one of the moments where you think, oh, maybe this movie might have something more to say than uh, just this this very basic evil versus good message. But it quickly drowns. Yeah. Well, he does all this thing and just like, with a little chaos, a little destruction, I mean brings life. Yeah, <laughs> and um, which uh, which brings is at least I'm trying to work out like, okay, why would this rich guy be in cahoots with like the ring... apocalypse? <laughs> yeah. Other than you know he's a bit brainwashed and he's kind of being shown what he wants to see, like yeah, he's been getting visions or whatever. I think it's just like it's just a money thing like it's like this capitalist yeah. thing and but yeah he choke he almost stuff, chokes to death on a cherry while his snuffleupagus in his drawer watches snuffleupagus <laughs> if, if we snuff- re- remake this movie I think we should have Matthew McConaughey play him oh wow <laughs> alright 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 uh, yeah I think he can nail the accent or if you want to just keep it within that um kind of evil British guy Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, he could yeah, probably rock it. Who would play Dallas? Um, oh, Jesus. No, I feel like the terrible Hollywood remake this would it's just... It's going to be Timothy Chalamet. No, I was going to say Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> oh, no, please no. Mark Wahlberg. Um, who would they get to play um, Cornelius? Um... I don't know, one of a fucking the old the older Skarsgård guy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe good. Or or maybe a Mark Ruffalo type. Who can Or a Taika Waititi maybe? He's too young. Oh. Yeah. Taika Waititi is the priest. He could bring Yeah, but the priest is like the more serious element of the film. Yeah. He's not like the comic. But also he's like Weird, yeah. yeah. And then I, I, I genuinely do not know who on earth could play Ruby Rod. Who in the name of God? Who would bring uh, that over the top energy? Who would bring that um kind of? What would happen if the Pauls were like just straight up sex, you know, sex magnet? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um. Who? Um. God damn it! Do you need to bring in like, I don't know, maybe a drag queen? Yeah, uh, probably RuPaul or something. Oh no, too too old. <laughs> um. Oh oh no no the 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 ter- the the worst the darkest timeline remake of this movie would have Mark Wahlberg playing Corbin. And Kevin Hart playing uh, Ruby Rod. <laughs> or The Rock play it. Oh, oh, The Rock. Oh, God, The Rock. The Rock would be the first choice to play this movie, though. He would. He would. 
and you pair because then you can Lee, give more. You know, I actually could see Mia Goth playing Lilu. Yeah, I think that could work. That could fucking work. Maybe she's just kind of at the front of my brain from seeing X like last week. Well, also it's like. But she like yeah. nails the look of it, and I think she could bring that. Maybe an Anya Taylor Joy. Uh, yeah, she's she's really good. Now. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to seeing the Northman. Yeah, That's or maybe week. maybe a Jared Harris as the priest as uh, the mm-hmm. priest. I don't know. Jared Leto. Oh, I am Jared so... Leto actually plays every character in the movie. No. Oh Jesus! <laughs> Method acting all Je- of them at the same Je- time. Jared Jared Leto. Uh, Jared Leto as a uh, Zor. He just keeps an actual snuffleupagus on him at all times. <laughs> Um, oh no, yeah, no, the Northman's, Northman's, I think, is on, like, the 22nd, I'm so excited. I'm excited for it, yeah. Jesus Christ, the Northman and that new Nicolas Cage film might be coming out the same weekend. I'm very excited for the Nicolas Cage film, too. Cinema might peak in two weeks, <laughs> folks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, um, the Northman, like, we could have, like, relies a, on, or, like, leans I've over heard... more on horror elements. Because I know it's not a horror movie. I've, from what I've heard, it's great and it's fucking violent. I don't know if it's as much a horror as it's, it's, it's kind of a, kind of like, the guy who does the lighthouse, but if he did 300, but with Vikings. Yeah, I'm kind of, I was kind of disappointed to find out it wasn't a horror movie. And without the, um. Robert Eggers. Yeah, but also it's just like. Like, but it is like well, imagine three hundred, but it's made by the guy who made the lighthouse and like the witch. Apparently, he's moving on to do uh, Nosferatu, a remake yeah, of that, which yeah. I'm super fucking excited to see. Yeah. That um, comes out. And then also like just the massive waves of unbearable talent just looks amazing. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it's insane. Uh, can can we imagine like the cinematic glow up of getting like Morbius and Fantastic Beasts three in back to back weeks and then in one week get uh, uh, yeah although I've heard uh, Fantastic Beasts three is actually not bad it doesn't look anywhere near as bad as the last two of them were the the what the first reviews have been like is Mad Mickelson is great as uh, Grindelwald mm-hmm. and that's mainly what people are saying okay cool yeah. You know? And was, was Grindelwald not played by fucking Johnny Depp? Yeah, Johnny Depp. Did they then, just fucking? Did they just? They they fired him, but they didn't fire Amber Heard from. Uh, I know there was like he had all weird too. allegations and stuff with time. But it was also then it came out. Oh no! While he fell off the rails, she was actually the one beating him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're getting very off topic. Yeah. But, um, this is a this is just a new segment about um upcoming. Movies. Yeah, <laughs> but um. And also, but also it just end up being a case of, uh, what should I call it? Just like, they, they fired Johnny Depp, but they didn't fire Amber Heard, despite the fact that, like, with Johnny Depp in that role, you actually need to cast someone talented to, uh, take it over. With Amber <laughs> Heard's role in Aquaman, you just need to cast another woman. Oh, my Another <laughs> young woman. Like, you could go out into Hollywood, throw a stone, and hit a more talented fucking yeah. unknown actress than Amber Heard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But um anyway, so at this point, um Yeah, and then thanks to uh one of Zorg's goons bugging the president's office, we find out that okay, he now knows this is how we find out that Zorg knows that on uh Fl- Floss and Paradise is uh the stones. Mm-hmm. So this is all 
bringing everyone together onto flo- onto this planet. Onto a fucking cruise. <laughs> yeah, pretty much just a cruise. You know, the 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 sweet life in space. Uh huh. Yeah, I kind of got that vibe at one stage. <laughs> oh, well, the the sweet life of Ruby and Raj. <laughs> um, but um, in the end, uh, we find out, and then. Monroe visits Corbin with news that he has been instated for um he's been reinstated in the military for a mission to uh Floss and Paradise and because he's so out of the loop in just like the world he doesn't answer his phone anymore because <laughs> it's just like I got a message from my wife once saying that she was leaving me and then I got a message from my lawyer another time saying that he was leaving me for her <laughs> So now he doesn't answer the phone to anyone about anything. Yeah. Oh. But yeah, this also just, it shows you a little bit about his character then as well when he answers the door and his like camera's bugged, uh, so that the goons go down and yeah. arrest someone else. That that happens just before the scene. Well, also I think it's just also he lives with enough fucking crackheads. Yeah. Um, in I love some of the details in the apartment. In as what well. can only be described in an apartment that can only be described as student accommodation levels. Oh yeah, it's this tiny fucking apartment. Everything's crammed, but I love some of the the workarounds that they built into this, where it's like the freezer just the fridge just drops into the floor and I it turns know. into the, into a shower. Like a shower is directly above this. I love it. And yo, know, he has like the. The pull out, the fold out bed is just yeah. literally just like, mm-hmm. like by the under the kitchen essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, a lot yeah, of no, spaces. And, that's what this amounts to. <laughs> and because and he also hasn't been paying attention to the TV because they've announced that he's the winner of the crew of the two tickets, and then he gets a call from his mother. Where does this cruise come in? Was it ever mentioned earlier? It Except what, for like the first. The scene where it's um. The first I think scene where Corbin's it's introduced. Ad- yeah, it's advertised on the TV and uh And then the military rigs it so that he wins and he's yes. reinstated and Which is how I imagine all radio competitions go. It's rigged in some way by the military. Yeah, Goalie Bay FM, any on any competition you win from them. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. It, it that's why the lotto's rigged so no one from Dublin has ever won. <laughs> is that true? I mean, when was the last time you ever heard of a lotto winner from Dublin? I don't know. That actually is kind of crazy considering the population of Dublin compared yeah. to the rest of the whole fucking country. It's it's every every other it's every it's it's why I feel, it's why I feel like um You need to give everyone else a little everyone bit of hope, being though. That's why I'm always like, why is everyone jealous of Dublin? We never get lotto wins. Uh, but um Yeah, and so anyway. Um this is how we find out this is how he finds out that he's been re he's won this competition. The military come and they tell him, yeah, no, you're going, this is your wife, and this big woman with uh, Princess Leia hair. <laughs> yeah, that's like, oh, I got that vibe off her as well. And then she's like the stern-looking German sort she's, of she's like if prin- Yeah, she's like if Princess uh, Leia was played by the angry German woman from Dodgeball. Yeah. Or the, uh, or the evil hotel man... Uh, Hotel inspector lady from Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, who has the mole. She gives me the same vibe as um the principal from Matilda. Mrs. Yes, Trunchbull. the Trunchbull vibe. Yeah. 
I'm I'm on a very much a sweet life of Zach and Cody uh, yeah. kick because again I'm every now and again, <laughs> also the uh, woman who played like the elderly housemaid uh, roommate <laughs> died recently. Oh, she was also the voice of Mrs. Potato Head in the Toy Story movies. Whoa, yeah. So of the two, so of the Toy Story cast, they've now lost both Potato Heads. No, because that's why Mr. Potato Head has absolutely. Fuck all to do and say in uh, Toy Story Four. How will we go they, on? They just read. They just like find clips. old old audio clips of Don Rickles and just put it in there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, R.I.P. the Potato Heads. Yeah. Um, but anyway, once again, off topic. Um, anyway, so, uh, the, he later then then Lilo and. Lilu and Vito turn up because they've also heard that Corbin has won the tickets and they need to get to Floss in Paradise. Mm-hmm. Um, so he puts all the military in the fridge. <laughs> here, hide in here. Hide in here. I got, th- I, got this, I got this new girlfriend, but she hates the military. It's like, in no other movie would the, the military of the world, not just the Americans, this is like the planet. The military, yeah. Never would they be like, yeah, we're okay, we're getting in freezers, so you don't end up sleeping on the fucking couch. They were kind of forced in there a little bit. Yeah, but also he's one but man. They, yeah, they. I mean, they could have done more. Yeah, but in the end, essentially, um, and so obviously then, they they he brings them in, and then the cops come knocking. He has the gray line. Uh, no, I am a meat popsicle. Mm-hmm. Um. So the, we end up finding out the cops are on Zorg's payroll. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, and so obviously they were able to outsmart the police. But then uh, he, Vito takes uh, Corbin out, steals the tickets. They all go to the, to the airport. Which is just like a bizarre sort looking of... Looking bus station. Like a dingy bus station. Looking. Yeah, there's trash everywhere. It looks like a subway station. <laughs> But it's a it's a spaceship airport. Yeah. Um. They managed to get through. They managed to get onto the plane. Um. Zorg's goons are ambushed by Mangalore. So we find out. Okay, now this is multiple races. I multiple people are trying to get the like the military is trying to get here. Our heroes are trying to get to the stones. Yeah. Zorg's trying to get to the stones, and the Mangalores are trying to okay. get to the stones yeah. because that's where Zorg is. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah. You might say there's four elements chasing the stone. <laughs> you could say that. Yeah. Um, on the fl- on the plane, we finally meet Ruby. Ruby Rod. This is amazing. Where he just like immediately just starts giving out about Bruce Willis being boring, just like <laughs> Where's the Pizzazz? Where's the Pizzazz? And he's and he starts uh yo just like straight up, not even flirting with the stewardess, <laughs> just like straight up. Oh, he's he's like going down on her. Yeah, just like. Are we talking about that? Yeah. He's <laughs> just like, I don't want one position. I don't want one position. I want all positions. <laughs> She's loving it. Chris Tucker just takes over the whole movie yeah. from this point on for yeah for a while. I know. Just well, call, no, call to the end. Call me my man. Call me my man. <laughs> Oh, he's, it's, he's great. He like, was cinema's worst blogger, essentially. Like he's <laughs> he's broadcasting the entire thing. He's like, I am Ruby Rod, <laughs> just the most over the top character I've ever seen. Uh-huh. 
Um, and so essentially, then we get like this incredibly bizarre sequence where Corbin had Corbin and Lily share an intimate moment about like having the same mission and whatnot. And Zorg sets off a bomb after a full six, a full ninety seconds, just watching Jamaicans refuel this spaceship while reggae is playing. It's so and you, the the fucking score in this movie is so bizarre. And meanwhile, it's Ruby, so it's so weird, yeah. and I don't think it works at all. But it also adds to it. Yeah, and Ruby is essentially just um. Go have is going down on this woman and like as the pl- as like the spaceship wings open up <laughs> and the le- and, and like her legs go up yeah and like the legs for <laughs> the thing come under so it starts to float up her legs go up and then bang and there's an explosion and it's just the most insane piece of editing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> this movie is amazing. Um. Uh. Zorg rece- then receives an intense call on the phone from the Grey's Evil and vows to cover the job himself. He's gonna go to Floss and Paradise. I just love the idea this, that like this cloud giant space by phone. Yes, th- he gets a <laughs> phone call from a giant space cloud. I mean, like telecommunication or something would have worked better. Probably. It's like, it's like getting a FaceTime from set from like uh, the eye of set the eye of Sauron. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, they arrive at Floss and Paradise, and they get their first look at the mysterious diva. Yeah, Floss and Paradise is just a massive cruise ship. Yeah. It's it's like the slightly less. Uh, is it on a different upsetting... planet? It, it it's on like this massive water looking planet. Yeah. And then it's just this massive floating like ship, mm-hmm. like a, like a floating space cruise ship, on like a water planet. With some questionable kind of this is nineteen ninety seven CGI, yeah. But we're gonna forgive it because you know. Oh yeah. And so yeah, and so they get there. They meet the mysterious diva. Um, Corbin gets invited to the opera while she has to. Lilu stays to kind of guard. Um. Uh, and obviously this is this is allows Ruby Rod to do even more. Just he he's smoozing with all these people dressed up in Paul John Paul Gautier like mm-hmm. insane outfits. Yeah. And essentially, it ends up. Uh, he gets transfixed when uh, the diva starts to sing because it's just like whoa. This is a really good looking scene. I I think the opera scene. Yeah. I, like, you can see this whole, like, semicircle of a planet in the background, and it's also this, like, alien woman who's, like, all blue, and it doesn't really have as much right to look as good as it does she in looks certain, like She looks like frames. a cross between a xenomorph and a n- member of the Navi. Yeah, yeah, she does. Yes. But I just, I, I, thought, I, I thought certain frames of it, if you just took a frame, it looks really visually nice. really does um uh, like more right than it has to do for this film <laughs> absolutely no no but um meanwhile then essentially uh Lilu gets um cornered by zorg and so mm-hmm. and she, she gets her fight scene now she gets her fight scene it looks Which, this great. is what i'm saying the fucking music in this is this like mixture of and um, juxtaposition of like this opera that's going on but and then also this like 
song that sounds like it came off like a, a now 23 uh kids kids uh hip-hop mix now, or now, something now that's what i call hip-hop 23 yeah something like that it's I, like this it's it's kind of awful yeah and also her fight is super slapstick there's one point where she's just going she's just slapping the guy back and forth like that for like maybe five or ten seconds <laughs> like i said this is at that period where it's just kind of like fights in movies are either kind of hollywood kind of shootout gun battles yeah or kind of kung fu-y stuff with like jackie chan yeah i mean they built it up earlier that it was going to be a bit kung fu because she was like learning all this stuff about human history and stuff and it goes a little bit through like martial yeah. arts so it, it it was i feel like it was part of the inspiration for neo's i know kung fu line <laughs> but um and yeah so all hell breaks loose when zorg and the mangalos start opening fire into the theater mm-hmm. or no no i'm not gonna say i'm not gonna make that joke i'll i'll say it when we're not recording mm-hmm. um <laughs> i don't want to get cancelled um <laughs> And opens fire into the theater, and as a result, the diva gets shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she dies, but um, she slowly she dies slowly, and Corbin isn't able to kind of figure out what she means until after she's dead. And he was just like, "Wait a minute, someone give me something sharp!" And he ends up having to cut her open and pull out the uh, stones out of her. Mm-hmm. And I also just love the fact that they never explain how did they get there. Yeah, it's just there's no there's no reason. Did for she it. eat them, or was it just kind of magically kind of? No, they went up the other way. She didn't eat them. But like he's cutting into like her full on stomach. Yep. How? Way up there. How forcefully do you have to? I don't know how like that that alien species like inner body works, but like unless there's like a it's surprisingly similar to humans. <laughs> She just had to push them really far up. Jesus. Oh, that was a, that was a long flight for her then. It's like that scene in South Park where... Um, yeah, it's like smuggling fucking uh, this, cocaine this... over the border. She needs I, to get it really far I, up there. Now I was about to say that episode of uh, South Park where uh, <laughs> Carmen smuggles fucking Disneyland up his ass. <laughs> Oh, you brought me Disneyland! Whoa! <laughs> oh. Um, but anyway, so, so all hell breaks loose. Lilu is trapped in a in like a vent. Mm-hmm. Um, wounded. Um, Corbin goes full on action hero, protecting the stones, protecting uh, Vito, and protecting Ruby. <laughs> I'm protecting Ruby. Yeah. He was just like. I don't know how this phone is. What what's going on? He's just Coleman. screaming, Coleman, my man. screaming Coleman, my man. the whole time. It's great. Ah! <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh god, he should have been nominated for best supporting actor. <laughs> I think so. This movie did make me want to go back and watch all of his filmography. Oh, and I was about to say, oh, you being look, I don't know how big it is. <laughs> is this the Rush Hour film? Rush Hour, yeah. He's in Silver Linings Playbook, weirdly enough, <laughs> for a little bit. I'm just kind of like, what happened to Chris Tucker? It's like, Kevin Smith came along and stole all of his roles. <laughs> Although, actually, no, Kevin Smith didn't really kind of get big until, like, the early 2010s. They're playing a different thing, though. I, th- I feel like... 
he's more he's far more campy and can go for more vibrant roles yeah. like this. Like in the first rush hour that I haven't seen like two or three of the rush hour films. I feel like, like I've seen them all at different stages in but the can't first one, between them. Yeah, like if you've seen the first one you've kind of seen all of them, but um yeah, yeah, I know in the first one he's kind of plugged in into that kind of nineties version of what Eddie Murphy would be in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Oh but, yeah, definitely. Yeah, him and Cuba Gooding Jr. are the two that kind of was just like they reached a point and then they were just pushed pushed down afterwards. There was four Rush Hour movies. Four. Wait, 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 wait. They've never made a fourth one. It's one of those always. It's, it's up there. In the in the filmography. Ah yeah, but, but there's no is it. But is it's it one of those. In production but it's one of those films where it's like, oh, it's in production. It's yeah. in production, but it's like it's Never not in production. Especially considering Brett Ratner made the first three, and like he is <laughs> not, he is shit canned out of Hollywood at this point. But um, yeah, and so obviously. It all ends. They eventually uh, get their hands on. They they find Lilu. And they manage to escape on a craft, but uh, Zorg leaves with the crates. He thinks the stones are in the crates. He opens them up, and uh, they're empty again. And he's just like, I'm so screwed. <laughs> he then go- goes out. You know, he has the one small cool moment, because they realize, oh shit, this place is detonated to explode. Mm-hmm. So they have to all evacuate the ship. Uh, Zorg goes back onto the ship, so that's uh, Plet, uh, shooting, shooting at a bunch of security guards with a gun in like one of the other kind of his only cool scenes. So it's just like this place is about to blow. I know, and just that he just lot takes all of them out. He then walks past uh Corbin just as Corbin's going in the elevator. They never meet. The hero and the oh, villain yeah. of this film never meet. Yeah. Like, um, it kind of shows Zorg is such a useless villain that he never makes it as far as meeting the hero. <laughs> um, but it's not the real evil. And man. then he meets... Him. Well, even then, like, Corbin doesn't meet the giant, the, the great evil either. Yeah. Um, and so, in the end, uh, Zorg uh, gets a taste of his own medicine because the Mangalores detonate a bomb after he uh, uh, undeton... He kind of kills the first bomb that he planted mm-hmm. in a very much kind of uh this is revenge moment mm-hmm. so that's the end of zorg on board the craft um dallas and lilu have a dmc about human nature mm-hmm. while okay. president Lindbergh is uh his celebrations are spoiled when they find out oh no the uh, giant e- the great evil is rapidly approaching <laughs> it just suddenly decided to put on the brakes yeah up, uh put up uh, put its foot on the accelerator and just it's coming. Yeah, it's coming right now. We got five yeah. minutes. <laughs> you have like less. You have one hour and fifty seven minutes, mm-hmm. and Bruce Willis's coolest line of the movie. I'll bring you back in two hours. <laughs> um, Lilu finishes her finishes her study on humanity, and it kind of taints her view a little bit. Like yeah, she starts she, like, having an episode, and... you know, she yeah. she starts having a bit of a breakdown. Mm-hmm. Which um, is fair. I'd, I'd be in the same situation. Yeah. They get I, to I the temple, they set up the stones, they find out that to get them working, you need to expose them to their element. Yeah. 
So uh, obviously wind, you blow into it, water, you spit into it, dirt, you just kind of pick Put up some, some sand. On it, yeah. um, and then, and then the fire one, he has one match left. <laughs> and the most French thing that's ever happened in a movie is the world being saved via a smoking habit. <laughs> um, and then in the end, to defeat him, they have to ascend. Corbin has to literally just tell her that he loves her. And it's just like you're my reason for like you're you're what I need, and it goes really melodrama at the very end. Yeah, a bit. Um, and so it activates because he shows her what love is. Yeah, which is super cheesy. We know, yeah. we know, but but it that's kinda, fine. It's fine. It kind of works for this, and then so obviously she then activates as the fifth element. She destroys the great evil. Uh-huh. Ruby just straight up just like. I'm leaving, I'm leaving. He yeah. ghosts everyone as soon as the movie ends. <laughs> I'm leaving. Just uh, in a huff. Yeah, he's gone. How do you get off the planet? He was walking. <laughs> he didn't care. I'm walking. <laughs> I'm walking. There's no way. He's yeah. Just gone. Um, And so the film then ends in a sequence that I can only describe as the ending of a Roger Moore James Bond film. <laughs> So far as the president wants to meet, um, oh yeah, meet him. Uh, his mo- Corbin's mother uh-huh. calls. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't believe that it's the president. The president. <laughs> she calls the president an idiot. Um, and then they're in a chamber porking essentially. Yeah, they're and having it, sex in this like, having... fucking backstage chamber, like the same one that she was created in. Probably. It looks like the inside of a tanning bed. Yeah. Yeah bright blue lights and, and they're, they're the having sex is like oh it's not quite ready it's gonna take another few yeah and, and he kind of opens up the little hatch look inside and just sort of oh <laughs> but um yeah and so in the end and then there's some cheesy song playing over it as and well. then it ends on a f- mid-sex freeze frame looking at looking at each other it's uh-huh. like the balls on this movie for ending like that even at this point where it's just like that was getting like a tired ending for even the James Bond films. <laughs> like this is uh this is yeah, this is two years away from like the worst ending of this kind, which was uh The World Is Not Enough because the main Bond girl in that movie is called Christmas Doctor Christmas Jones. For the simple fact that at the very end Pierce Brosnan can look at her with a champagne glass in his hand, just really makes out with her and just a Oh, I thought Christmas only came once a year. Oh. <laughs> you can't tell this right now, but Connor, see, just looking at me with a look of like, I need to pour soap on my soul. <laughs> like, into Oh, very and so right that's now. the end of the movie. Let's quickly run through some post production. Um, the release date, it was released on the 9th of May 1997 in the US. The 6th of June, 1997 in the UK, and the 13th of June here in Ireland. So not the biggest jump in, like... No. Because, again, like, at this point, at this point, you, there would have been movies where, like, we they could have gotten it in the States in, like, April, and we would have had to wait until, like, November in some cases. Yeah. Which was super annoying. But, again, you couldn't pirate shit, you know? Mm-hmm. You couldn't, like, spoil things on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, there was none of that. The budget came in at 93 million. Which, again, for 97 is a lot, especially considering Hollywood didn't do this. 
No. This was a European production. Yeah. Uh, opening weekend, uh, I could only find the opening weekend for, like, the US release of it because yeah. there just wasn't the numbers for, like, all the different yeah, yeah, international yeah. markets. Opening the States to 17 million, which isn't bad. No, no, which isn't no. bad. It was, it was deemed as being a bit of an underperformer in the US considering you look at that budget that it had mm-hmm. and its overall gross at the US domestic box office was 63.8 million off a 93 million budget. Really? But I would expected a lot more. It was also a huge hit at the same time because internationally it made 200.1 million. Okay. Where old... was it performing really well? France? A lot of Europe, yeah. Yeah. Lot. I mean, obviously yeah. France, but yeah. Europe, just across the board, were like really into this movie. Yeah. Um. Globally, it ended up making uh, two hundred and sixty three point eight million. Okay. Which for nine for ninety seven is a is a lot for a risky film, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. It opened at number one at the U.S. box office and spent two weeks at number one before being uh beaten by Jurassic Park two. Which is understandable. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. There's no way you um, could be that. 75% of all receipts for this film came from the international markets, predominantly Europe. So mm. 75% of the gross, essentially, was, yeah, was Europe, yeah. ma- mainland Europe, I've got to say. Yeah, it must be. Um, it was met with somewhat divisive reception with some. Like, Ebert and Siskel praised it. Uh, certain places like Variety uh, criticised it. Ruby Rod was deemed a very divisive figure, as you can tell. Yeah, probably at the like, time. He would probably ready for this, like, he, almost drag sort of performance. Yeah, like, this fucking... Essentially kind of like a, a cross between, like, a drag queen and Divine. Yeah. Well, Divine was a drag queen, but, like, sort of black... Black, um, sex object man version of Divine. Yeah. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, and then uh, it got a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes with an 86% audience score, a 52 on Metascore, which is kind of a mixed reception mm. result, and a B cinema score. But again, cinema score is like, it's kind of odd because it's like, it doesn't really show like how good the movie is. It's just like, how did audience respond What's to it? What's your rating for it? For this, mm-hmm. for me, this would be at least an 8. Because I just, I, I loved it. I, eight out of I, I 10. really dig this. I say about an 8 out of 10, yeah, you know, there's certain things. I give it a solid 7. Yeah, around that 7 8 range. I feel like, I feel like, that was my first time watching it though. I feel like I could start to enjoy this more yeah. after more views of it. The more you watch it, the more you kind of learn to just sort of accept it accept for what it, it is. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, yeah, multiple viewings of this, I could really get into it. Yeah. Plus, also, one of the interesting things is. In a movie, you're always kind of interested to see like what the uh, interaction between a hero and a villain is. Would you actually have really wanted to see like a conversation between Corbin and Zorg? There's too different to really like be interesting, you know. I don't think any, anything much would have happened anyway. Yeah. Um, after the film's release, uh, Basson was sued by Jean Giroux and Alejandro. Gir- Jodorowsky, okay. who was uh, who you may know the name Jodorowsky from the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, which was his do- the documentary made about uh the Dune film that never was. 
right. that was going to be like there was another film a four-hour Dune kind of epic that would have featured, I think, Bowie... Bowie and Mick Jagger would have been in it. Oh, my God. Uh, I need to look up the cast qu- quickly. That sounds um, crazy. As if Lynch's one wasn't crazy enough. And how long was Lynch's film? It was probably... I feel like Lynch did a long Dune as well. His was long. Like, three hours? Probably. It wasn't three hours, but, like, it was It was very much kind of... dragged anyways. Yeah. Like, I've, I've watched it, and it, it definitely drags. Yeah, I'm trying to look up... Um, and it doesn't make sense at all. But if you've, I like, if you've read the book, it's like very hard to adapt. Yeah. As well, I think. Um, I'm looking it up now. It would have featured um Orson Welles. I think he would have played um the Baron. Okay. Um. Who else? Who's always gonna play? I can't tell. Um, Salvador Dali would have been in it. What the fuck? Salvador Dali would have played the Emperor... So, yeah, so basically they got sued by the guy who almost made Dune in the 70s and by one of the comic book artists they brought on board to, uh, help in the pre-production, but the suit was thrown out because they were like... Because also they were claiming, what were they oh, for? the plagiarism, because they were like, oh, you copied a bunch of stuff from like a comic that me and this guy thought up of, okay. uh, called the In- Incel or Inkle? Incel? Incel. I-N-C-A-L. Inkle. Inkle. Well, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was thrown out on the account that it was deemed that only a tiny fragment or two were copied. And the fact that Giroud was involved in the pre-production process of the fifth element Kate did kind of sully the con idea of him suing. It's like, well, you did work on this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, it became a sci-fi cult classic. It has, mm-hmm. it's like, like you were saying earlier, it's a bit of a Marmite uh, reaction to it. Uh, but it's still deemed a classic in many circles. Whether good, whether it's either a classic classic, camp classic, or so good it's bad classic. Um, it was nominated for Best Sound Effects at the Oscars, but... In what can only be described as the mantra of the nineteen ninety eight Oscars, it it lost to Titanic. Oh, that's how you can kind of sum up the nineteen ninety eight Oscars, <laughs> lost to Titanic. Um, yeah, I don't know who was nominated for uh, best support, who won for best supporting actor that year. I can't think off the top of my head. Um, but it uh, Chris Tucker should have been nominated. Chris <laughs> no, and Basan has been kind of hot and cold on the idea of doing a sequel. I think, like I said earlier, the window for like a straight sequel to this has kind of been missed. Mm-hmm. It's been too long. You could bring the world back. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see more. Back. I'd love to see more of this world. Um, and again, what else is Luke Besson kind of doing at this point? You know, he mm-hmm. hasn't really had that much. Re- he hasn't had any big hits lately. I think he's kind of moved into like he's gonna be producing more. But um, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's let's break out some Jake's takes. Right, this movie it. works because it's a story about four elements combining into a fifth element. Um, and this movie is four different elements combining to make a greater than some of its parts film as, a, as the fifth element. Mm-hmm. Action, melodrama, slapstick, and absurdity. <laughs> Those four elements combine to create this movie. Yeah, I'd agree. Yes. Um, it's the perfect Bruce Balance performance. Yeah. Because, like I said, his character is checked out of the world 
So Bruce Willis is playing a character who is checked out, but he brings that checked out quality that he brings to every Bruce Willis performance where he doesn't give a shit, but he's giving a shit. So it's it's a balance. It's like he's do he's he's bringing the good energy to like his bad habit. Mm-hmm. Um, Zorg is a deconstruction of what a sci-fi villain is wholly flawed a contrast to the perfect being that Lilu is because he's such an imperfect villain he is he ha- he's he's a weakling but he has this sort of air of swaggering bravado mm-hmm. you know um he feel he comes across he's made to look ineffective as soon as he's made to look cool yeah so it's very much you know like like a, he's not even a competent enough villain to ever meet the hero like no not at all like like, the closest he gets to meeting them is, like, he comes out of one escalate elevator and they go into the next one and they never even lock eyes. Yeah. Um, this film is about the worship of sexiness in society. <laughs> because you have Lilu come along and, like, so many different people are just worshipping her. Yeah. And it's, like, you know, like, she oh, literally, indeed. like, her first scene is, like, her being getting like this skimpy outfit like literally mm-hmm. built onto her yeah and then the general's like i think i need a moment alone to yeah like this film is just like we, this is just kind of like wor- this film is about like how a lot of society just kind of worships like sexiness mm-hmm. even when it's just like she's not trying to actually be this is just she's a, she's a person yeah kind of thing um and this film is one of the few films that's ever been able to retain the emotion of its seed period, as I like to call it. Okay. Because Luc Besson wrote this film when he was 16. Every character in this movie is somehow 16 years old. Yeah, you can tell that this was... Corbin is the hopeless romantic who is so mopey and down in the dumps about his wife leaving him that he just, like, doesn't even answer his text messages anymore mm-hmm. for, like, the moaniest moan-bag kind of reasons. Like, oh, my wife left me via phone message, so I'm but never also, answering my phone. he just sees this, this woman once, and he's just completely in love. Yeah, that, roma- that, that kind of romantic attitude that you would get out of a 16-year-old where it's just like, I've met this beautiful girl, I'm willing to literally fight off the entire city's worth of cops <laughs> yeah. just to, like, get her to safety, even though she's just fallen through the roof of my taxi cab and, like, possibly gotten me fired. Yeah, and the thing with his license where it's, like, he only has one point left where he had, like, a few of them before yeah. she did that. Yeah. But it's just, he's he's a lovesick teenager Yeah. in a, in a middle-aged Bruce Willis body. Lilu is like the sex object of kind of out of the mind of like what a 16 year old would kind of but also it's just like she has that whole sort of like emotional kind of distress of like what is love what am I that kind of you know a 16 year old kind of emo and everything like you yeah because she is just like created and then she has introduced that naivety but also that kind of slightly emo kind of vibe like i don't know what i don't know what love is i don't understand (laughs) what it is that kind of uh mentality the priests are just awkward kids you know (laughs) like they really are like the picked on kids in school who are just kind of like project leaders somehow even though they don't really have leadership skills they're hall monitors like that's they they are fucking hall monitors um zorg is 
a little bitch who talks a big game but mm-hmm. gets owned immediately oh, by yeah. so many things. Cherries, his own, uh, his own lackeys at one point. <laughs> and then Ruby Rod is just this constantly horny sex pest. <laughs> like, like every teen horny uh, lust emotion just pulled into one mm-hmm. character and then stuffed into a bizarre zebra print. <laughs> a co- oh, no, it's not that. It's like a leopard print suit um and yeah other than that my only other take is this movie is fucking awesome yeah any more takes from you or um <laughs> i want to have some great takeaway but i don't know i think it's a thoroughly enjoyable movie Sie- siege is weeges <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was very enjoyable and i think over more viewings of it i'll enjoy it more absolutely i feel like it might also be something that would be uh, beneficial to watch with other people and pull the piss out of a little bit yeah like it's kind of ridiculous the plot a lot there's a lot of plot holes and you don't really know the motivation or why something is happening it's a fun it just group keeps moving. watch yeah i think a group watch mm-hmm. would be cool yeah anyway let's get to the box office game before we call this a day all right all right we'll start with the domestic for 1997 what take a guess what do you think the number one film is of 97 oh i don't think i know enough film knowledge to guess okay this. then at number one keep that alien's name out of your fucking <laughs> mouth it's men in black at number two um i don't have a joke for this it, it's just jurassic park the lost world um Number three, it's a movie about a guy who has to deal with the fact that his pants are on fire because he is a liar, liar. Pants on fire? Yes. <laughs> At number four, that other iconic uh, Gary Oldman villain performance, Air Force One, which is essentially Die Hard on the President plane, with Harrison Ford playing the President. Is, oh yeah, is it? Yeah. Is there parts of that are set that are set in Ireland? No. Am I way off? Go, you're getting a mix-up with Patriots game, which is uh, <laughs> Harrison Ford versus the IRA. Okay. <laughs> At number five, okay, this is actually not a movie that came out in 1997. Star Wars, the first of the special editions. What were the special editions? Like the the, the, Ew- the Ewoks no, movie? No, that the actual Christmas special. No, the special editions, the ones where like they add in like the ne- oh, okay. unnecessary CGI. Oh, and it's yeah. the it's the version of a a New Hope that. This is where they actually put a New Hope on the title because beforehand it was just Star Wars. And then we brought out the uh, special editions because Lucas was like, "Oh, we're gonna do the prequels, so it's gonna mm-hmm. be." One, two, and three. So now, this first original 77 one is uh, episode four. So this is the first time it's actually getting labelled as Star Wars episode four. So they re-released it in cinemas. And it made so much fucking money that uh, it was... uh, Because again, I mean, it was technically the same movie, but they added on more scenes. Some they did not fucking need. Probably not. We will will never need that that Jabba the Hutt scene. Oh, there's director's cut for a reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, at number six, we've got My Best Friend's Wedding. Um, at number seven, a movie so successful they built a museum in Belfast around it. Mm-hmm. Titanic. Yep. 
Um, at number eight, it's Nick Cage again. But what film do you think? No idea. I'm doing I'm doing a taking off of my face because it's face off. Face off? Yes. <laughs> it was him and John Travolta and it is a, as fucking oh, insane oh. as it sounds. Oh, John Travolta and Nick Cage in a movie sound horrific. And this is before they went crazy. Well, they were always <laughs> crazy, but like not not nowadays crazy. No. Um, number nine. What killed the franchise? The ice puns. It's Batman <laughs> and Robin. And at number ten, if you can't get me Tarzan, get me his non-union equivalent, George of the Jungle. Oh. Not peak Brendan Fraser just yet. Um. Okay. Number okay, let's and let's just was that before or after the mummy? Mummy is ninety nine. Okay. Yeah, so this is two years before the mummy. Whoa. Yeah, at no at let's at glo- globally the number one film is Titanic. Titanic. Yeah. Yes, at number two you'll never guess this. Oh 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 oh. Bean, the first, Bean. Mis- the first li- the first Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean movie, the second highest grossing global movie of '97. It's fucking insane. Uh, how did that possibly? I don't know. It made more money than the Jur- Jurassic Park sequel. That doesn't make sense at all. At number three, it's a movie that uh, Will Smith right now wishes he had the technology from. It's Men in Black, <laughs> so he could just neutralize everyone about the. F- Slap. Men in Black 1. Men in Black 1, yes. The best one. And, num- <laughs> and number 4, The Lost World. And number 5, His Pants Are Still On Fire. It's Liar Liar. <laughs> and number 6, Get Off His Plane. It's Air Force 1. Mm-hmm. And number 7, It's As Good As It Gets. With a- As Good As It Gets. And number 8, Hey, how'd you like them apples? It's Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> And number nine, it's Star Wars. And number ten, it's uh, My Best Friend's Wedding. Again, some of these I just could not make a fucking joke. <laughs> that's, that's very good. Certain years, they, certain years are just like it's a gold mine of jokes. <laughs> and then other years, it's just like... <sighs> difficult. Yeah, oh. I suppose if you got yeah. Will Smith, you yeah. first, it's not also, that hard to joke about. Also, the first time we've actually been able to do the uh, box office game in a couple weeks. Because uh, we couldn't do it for Michael Collins. Because um, we'd already done 96 beforehand mm-hmm. no point redoing it re, no point redoing it even for just like the week that movie came out because it's not going to be in the top 10 no um and obviously you didn't want to do it when it's just me alone doing it because then like you don't have the fun of bouncing off someone with my jokes mm-hmm. yeah but um yeah so other than that that's pretty much it for this week's episode um yeah so uh thank you very much for coming siege uh, again, me. this is a this is just a call for everyone. If you haven't seen the Fifth Element yet, check it out. Check it out. Yeah, I mean, if you hadn't seen it already, why did you listen? But you know, unless you really don't care and just want to listen to uh, us rambling, listen to my voice. <laughs> yes, listen to his beautiful caramel voices. <laughs> um. But anyway, until next week, folks. Uh. We shall bid you adieu. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Connor. It's Thanks been uh, it's been a long time coming. Yeah. Thank you, Katie, for making a very random appearance in the background. You're welcome.
<laughs> in the, the last fifteen minutes in the last fifteen the minutes, and you can only kind of be heard of she, her giggling. She she's the one who guessed Mister Bean. <laughs> Yes, you are. Um, Anyway, so until next time, folks, thank you and goodbye.